Hello, and welcome to Stuff We've Seen, the podcast where we talk about stuff we've seen. I'm your host, Teal, and here with me is my permanent guest, guest host, permanent guest host, James. What's up, Jim? <laughs> now I laugh, see? Wait, what's going on here? This is the old uh, switcheroo. Oh, the switcheroo. Whoa, geez. Now audience <laughs> expectations are a little shaken up from the norm. Why is that? Maybe because we're going to talk about Brian De Palma. Oh, the master of the switcheroo. The master of the switcheroo. You never know. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Maybe I'm going to wake up and it'll just be a dream. Yeah, or a dream within a dream. Or, or, or you think it's a dream, but then the other stuff really happened. But I've snapped awake. <laughs> yes, we're talking about Brian De Palma, who has various themes and motifs throughout all of his movies that he just likes to do over and over and over and over again. And it sometimes feels like, okay, well, an example of one of his things that he likes to do over and over again is uh, one person following another person through down a street through a museum through a shopping mall one yeah somebody walking and following somebody else uh and he does it uh it, it's one of his hitchcock things that he loves right out of vertigo and the following in the cars it's like the stalking kind of thing it's I mean. the stalking thing yeah it's slow somebody goes around a corner the camera kind of glides to follow them but then they're not there and yeah so he, that's something and i just <laughs> i kind of uh, he does it well but he also does it over over and over and over again like every movie has one of these sequences well it's it's one of his obsessions and of course he even had a movie that very few people know about and it's called obsession uh from 1976 and oh yeah so what we realized is this guy has made over the course of his career now uh, brian de palma is 80 years young yep born in 1940 and he went to college at columbia mm -hmm. study film there and, you know, doesn't make as many movies anymore, obviously, but he's not quite retired. He has some projects potentially in the hopper, but, you know, mm -hmm. you just never know if we get the last one. Right. Um, and then, you know, it, last 20 years, his career has definitely been spotty. No big Hollywood films. It's all been sort of uh, foreign financed. Even Black Dahlia? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was a big, big studio uh, okay. film or not but uh but certainly the big budget ones that he've done he hasn't done a big big budget mega film since mission to mars right which was kind of a failure and he was blamed for it yeah i mean it did have uh some box office but not for what it cost right so <laughs> i have a little anecdote quickly on that one yeah, well, wait a minute. Hold on to that for just one second. So here's what we're going to do, uh, you, the uh, the listener, is this is going to take way more than we can do in one episode. <laughs> so we're going to do it in two parts. I don't know what's going to happen in the first part, and then we'll regroup and we'll, we'll give you a second part. Uh, I think the first one is going to be more anecdotes and yeah. thoughts and experiences. And then the second part, we might take a deeper dive into some of these particular films and we might do that in the first part too we'll see what we get to we'll, we'll see what we get to now your antidote not antidote <laughs> uh just a quick anecdote is i was in a pitch meeting in hollywood you had my curiosity but now you have my attention okay i'm intrigued now in 2001 
And when you go into these meetings, they like tell you what their production company does and what movies they've made. And here's who we are and stuff like that. And uh, they had done Mission to Mars. Okay. And I hadn't seen it. Mm. And I just wanted to say something like, oh, I heard about that or something. Right. But somehow the way it came out. The way I phrased my question, <laughs> the way I phrased my question was, oh, yeah, Mission to Mars. What happened there? <laughs> <laughs> and the producer, you know, I, I don't know. I can't remember his name. He was the producer of the movie, though. His, his face kind of sank. Oh. And he said, Brian De Palma is what happened. Ouch. Yeah. Have you seen Mission to Mars? Is one yes, I've seen it. Okay. Um, I guess you didn't see it in the theater. No, I did not see it in the theater. <laughs> I completely avoided it um, and kind of forgot about it because with my relationship with the Palma, there's kind of these films that I feel like he, he makes these certain movies and you're like, that's a Brian De Palma movie? And I skip those that I don't feel are probably that he's sort of like almost like a director for hire or something and they don't seem to fit. And then I heard it wasn't very good. It didn't do very well. And it just had no appeal. So wait, you've never seen it? Untold now. Oh. <laughs> just a recent watch. <laughs> as part of this, uh, you know, as me, I like to go down rabbit holes. And I felt like, you know, this all started, by yeah. the way. We, the last episode, we were talking about films that didn't seem to have a personality. They, yeah, they were genre movies that didn't really even like have much to do with the genre. Right. And they're just kind of really straightforward, medium shot, close up, establishing shot. Uh, kind of, They just caught, kind of follow basic filmmaking formula. And there's nothing, the, the director is not really bringing much visual panache to the, to the proceedings. And uh, so not only are the scripts kind of weak and boring with weak and boring actors, the direction is just kind of flat and flaccid. And, you know, every now and then there's those genre filmmakers who bring a lot of style and you see it in their early work. Even I was thinking, uh, it just popped into my head is like Sam Raimi. Right. Yeah. Brought a lot of visual style uh, and personality to his super low budget films uh, early on. Yeah, right. There's something, it's, it, you, you can be a low budget film, but there's got to be something about the director's personality that makes it a little different and makes you kind of sit up and say, hey, you know, this is somebody that I want to watch. Yeah. And so a couple episodes ago, when we were doing our horror movies that were on Criterion, we did touch on uh, Sisters, which is a De Palma film. And you had not finished watching it. No, no, no. See, you keep getting this confused. I had not finished watching it for the second time. Oh, I had seen right, the movie, right, right, right. Yes, but okay. This, yeah. this was a rewatch. Um, and then uh, for this past month, Criterion put on uh, Dress to Kill which yes. I hadn't seen in many, many, many years. So I rewatched that. And that was going to be something that we were going to talk on our last yeah. episode. And we started talking about it, but I cut all that stuff out because we realized pretty quickly <laughs> that, you know what, now's the time to talk about Brian De Palma and really give him uh, a lot of attention because my, my gut tells me that a lot of younger film lovers don't mm -hmm. really know much about him. Yeah, and he he was a pretty big figure for me, like in the eighties. Yeah, and and that's the thing is, so our generation, we grew up. That was one of the big names. Now, yes. it wasn't necessarily. It's funny. It wasn't necessarily that every movie he made was so awesome or something. It's just he had such a 
a presence with his films that liked them, yes. hate them, or being somewhere in between. They they were like they were just meant something. It's kind of like how Tarantino is. Every film is an event of some sort. Every film's an event. Well, because he he has a brand. Yeah, you know, and it's like, oh yeah, you know what you're. Sometimes you know too much about what you're getting, but <laughs> well, yeah, that's what. So it's sort of the weird thing is I've now gone down. I went down a super rabbit hole and wanted to catch up on a whole bunch of films that of his that I didn't see ever in my life, and yeah. some that I really wanted to revisit again. And watching so many of his movies in a you know right close together, yeah. you really start to see the the things that he does over and over again, the things he does well, the things he doesn't do well. But my my thought is that when I hear somebody younger than me and they say that the I'm not a big De Palma fan or right. he's okay, you know, they've seen Mission Impossible, they've seen oh, the Untouchables, yep. they've seen Carrie, and they've seen Scarface. Yeah, pretty that's much. the ones they've seen, and maybe yep. they've seen Dress to Kill. Maybe, um, probably not. But I don't think that they've really seen a lot of his films. I totally agree. He's and made I, thirty uh, features. Is it thirty features? Yeah, yeah. some of them are these really old, like in the right. '60s. He made these very low budget, very um, independent. Like, hey, I I don't know how he was getting money to make these movies, but he was from his dentist, probably. Like, <laughs> maybe <laughs> because he made these films that I have now. I've sampled a few, and I haven't yeah. finished them, uh, but I did get enough to get a sense. Of those those early, so basically, it's the pre Sisters films. Yeah, so Sisters Sisters is a very I think important film for him because yeah, it's the film that he's been working to learn, and then he this is the film I think he wanted to make. Yes, it and I haven't seen those pre sisters but it's, it, it feels and it was sort of his breakthrough film sisters well because it's the first one i think that set him on a path of what he could really do well which was these suspense films that might be hitchcock like yes where none of the other films uh from what i've seen anyway right. were like that i i he has the very first movie he made is not the first film that it comes up in his filmography because it took several years oh, to really? come out the wedding party um the wedding party says 69 However, it was completed, like edited in 66, but the company ran out of money. They went out of business. And it was actually shot in 1963. What? Yeah, it shot 19, it's black and white, 16 millimeter. And what? And I knew this because I first tried to watch Greetings, which I was like really sort of like a bad comedy and it's, okay. it's very rough, but it has Robert De Niro in it. Right. And Robert De Niro had a sort of long sort of hippie hair a little bit. And then this wedding party movie, which comes a year later, I started watching that. I was like, well, let me sample this. And there's Robert De Niro, but he looks like a kid. And he has like a a flat top. It turns out it was shot in 1963. He was 20 years old. Oh, wow. And he looks like a kid. And Jill Clayburg plays the bride in the movie. She's like 22, 23 years old. Oh, wow. And then Jennifer Salt must have been a friend of yes. Brian De Palma's. She's like 20, 22 years old in that movie. And she's in the wedding party. And it's wow. insane. And then, so I, I eventually was able to get back to the old movies. And right. I checked out the entirety of Hi Mom, which was 1970. Okay. And that also has De Niro. And it's a sort of sequel to Greetings. Oh, interesting. Okay. His, he's the same character. and He's out of Vietnam. And it it also features, and this is another thing about De Palma, especially in his early work, he had friends. 
There's an actor named William Finley. Okay. And William Finley shows up in many De Palma movies. Interesting. William Finley is Winslow or the Phantom in Phantom of the Paradise. Okay, right, right, right. Yeah. So he was a friend of De Palma's and he's in The Wedding Party and he shows up in like various films. He's in Sisters. He plays the crazy, like the psychiatrist guy. Oh, yeah. He's hanging out watching through the yeah. window. So there's the watcher <laughs> theme again, right? And then another actor friend of De Palma's, Garrett Graham, is in High Mom. And he shows up as this crazy flamboyant uh, rock star beef in Phantom of the Paradise. Okay. And I only know this is because I never saw Phantom of the Paradise other than moments when it was on cable in like the right. 80s. And so I watched it as part of this last couple of weeks. So, and my wife and I watched it. <laughs> I did not rewatch it. I have seen it before, but it's been a long time. It's a camp classic. <laughs> it is a it is a camp classic. Yes. And interesting that it comes two years after Sisters because I feel like the movies he made, like after Phantom of the Paradise, feel fall very much in line with Sisters and Phantom of the Paradise. Right. It has though. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise has some of the trademarks in terms of camera movement and stuff. Oh, there's just these other themes. That show up even in the early works, like Hi Mom, De Niro is obsessed with wanting to be a filmmaker. And okay. he has like an eight millimeter camera and he is photographing the apartment complex across from his. And he's in this rundown tenement. Oh, wow. So the voyeuristic thing goes that far back. It does, but it's in the LaGuardia buildings down in, uh, you know, Greenwich Village. Okay. But you get to see what Greenwich Village looked like in 1969 when they shot it. So that was right. really fascinating to see things that I was very well aware of when I walked around NYU, but it doesn't look anything like it did Right, then. right, right. Wow. But Phantom of the Paradise, if you remember, is very focused on the lead guy, Swan. Yes. He videotapes everything that's right he's videotaping everybody and so there's this whole voyeuristic thing going on in phantom of the paradise not to mention when william finley playing winslow the phantom right he is spying on the goings-on and also jessica harper's character phoenix so it has all those themes yeah it has all those right from the beginning yeah okay interesting so it's not a thriller but it's engaging in some of the same ideas and themes. Well, there is a, yeah, there's like, I mean, it's kind of a silly thriller in Phantom of the Paradise, but there's also these things that he does over and over and over again, where there is a shower scene <laughs> in Phantom of the Paradise. And so there's a lot of times in De Palma movies, there are bathroom and shower scenes. Yes. Sisters has them. The sisters has, yeah, the whole thing with the pills and sisters. Yeah. He's obsessed with bathrooms. Uh, yeah. And this shows up in a lot of his later works too, which is why it was kind of cool to start watching some of his, right. his not as well-regarded fare, just because it was so, I guess at this point, the people that were his big champions, mm -hmm. like Pauline Kael, yeah. They've all dead and long gone. So he doesn't have any more of those champions anymore. Without, <laughs> without them, he didn't get releases. So like some of his last few films, I don't know whether they ever made it into a theater. I don't think Domino or Passion made it into theaters. No. And Domino, I mean, that was one of the first ones I started to rewatch. Cause it's like, I'm going to go right to the end and, and right. see what, 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 what was he up to at the end? And the problem is, is this was another one of these European uh, shoots with like mostly European actors, probably to appeal to the producers right. and they ran out of money. And the end of that movie, 
feels like <laughs> he they ran out of money. I think that they ended up like finding a way to shoot an end just to have it wow. because the end set doesn't quite look like the way it was just like a few shots before. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. And uh, and it's pro- and it's not that big a budget movie to begin no, with. No, but it, you can see that it was probably very frustrating for De Palma cuz he has a build up to one of those classic De Palma people in peril, slow motion, lot happening all at the same time, what's going to happen. And he didn't have the money to pull it off. He has a split screen though, which is another De Palma staple. He started it with, I think, Sisters and he uh, continued with it many movies. And he continued to enjoy the split screen, yeah. Uh, So that's why Domino, it's really short and it's not that it's a terrible movie, but the plot it just it it involves like ISIS or something, and it feels very dated. <laughs> what I read, it just seemed like a really generic thriller. It kind of was, but then De Palma, they probably hired him because like we've got De Palma, and he does right. do a few things. There's this ridiculous thing at the end where a drone becomes almost like a killer drone where it runs into a person. <laughs> wow. Well, he does this. Well, another theme is that he loves slashed throats. Oh, he certainly does. Yes. <laughs> I've discovered how much by watching a lot of his movies and discovering the slash throat thing. Uh, it, somebody should do a supercut. <laughs> I'm thinking now of all the De Palma supercuts you could do. You could like cut together all those walking sequences. So all the characters are following each other. You, know, you always think of him as more of this thriller guy. And some of it's kind of hokey. You may laugh because it's a little bit over the top. But he... In his early works, he was trying to do like weird subversive comedies. Right. And when he returned to comedy later, it didn't quite work. Well, like you should see High Mom. It has a little bit of almost like a Putney Swope aspect to it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I think you, you, you might you, like High Mom. <laughs> okay. I'll check it out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm putting together on today's episode. Some list of things you might want to try to check out. Exactly. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise, again, I hadn't seen it. So I, my wondering was, well, d- does it feel like a De Palma movie? And having seen a little bit of the early work, it's this weird transition where he's starting to come out of it. But you can see the silliness of De Palma still in effect with Phantom of the Paradise. Well, I feel like the silliness is there in some other movies, too, with with varying degrees of success. Yeah, well, I think that's weird. He's this, he's like so over the top. I don't know whether or not he privately finds some of this stuff funny. I feel like, yeah, sometimes things are so melodramatic or like so cartoony and so, and, and sometimes that's because of the way he shoots it, but it's also uh, sometimes the performance he's looking for. Well, yeah, because sometimes some of these performances are over the top and also a lot of times they're not by big, big name actors. A lot of times right. it goes for like a second tier actor. Yeah. So it, there's something a little bit larger than life and over the top about most of his movies. And sometimes that's a really good match with the content. Uh, One of the things that makes it a little over the top, he, of course, he loved Hitchcock. And what's interesting is that I guess you've had a lot of filmmakers, right? These young, young, young punks making movies today that their, their idols are like Coen brothers or Tarantino or something. Well, you know, think about this guy, his idol was Hitchcock. Yeah. And so, what did he do with sisters? He gets the composer, Bernard Herrmann, yes, yes. who did Vertigo and Psycho. Yep. Which, by the way, Bernard Herrmann was never nominated for an Oscar for any Hitchcock movie he did. 
that's just wrong. How does how does Vertigo and <laughs> Psycho not get nominated for best score? That's, Isn't that, that is crazy? Just, and he did uh, the score for Obsession too. So right? he gets a nomination for Obsession. Right. Okay. He does. Which now now here's the thing. Have you seen Obsession? Yes. When did you see that? These are some of my questions. When did you see it? About three days ago. Okay, so you watched it as p- for part of this because we haven't talked about what you've seen. It was near the top of my list because I had really heard almost nothing about it, knew almost nothing about it. There was a review on IMDb, and the t- the first sentence of the review said, uh, "Don't read anything about this movie." That would have been helpful if I hadn't known anything. And so I knew nothing going in. And yeah, I, I, I don't know what I don't know why this movie is so completely forgotten. Um, well, let me ask you a question on this. Yeah. Like, how quickly did you pick up how close it was matching up to Vertigo? <laughs> <laughs> including this is so weird, including like there's some really bad rear projection driving yes. stuff in it. Yep. And it almost felt like that was a homage to Hitchcock. I think it is. Like, I feel like he couldn't be doing this bad a job at it, right? <laughs> no, I no, I think that is, I think he's doing that. But that's, again, sort of that cartoony, melodramatic. Sometimes his visuals are very cartoony. And the score, though, is amazing by Bernard The score Herman. is amazing. And I, I really liked the uh, Cliff Robertson performance, actually. Oh, see, I hated it. And I think he's so miscast. Okay. See, I liked it. <laughs> but see, do you, now, do you know some of the dirt behind the scenes? Not much. Cliff Robertson was a nightmare. Uh, that does not surprise he me. He was a prima donna, and <laughs> he went and he was self-tanning. And Vilmos Sigmund, who was his first pairing with right. Brian De Palma, and did, did like whenever Brian De Palma did some really great widescreen cinematography movies, Vilmos was, was there. there. And there are shots that are just really cool in this movie. Many. And that's yeah. how I first saw this movie is that during the Brian De Palma uh, documentary, they showed clips from Obsession. And I'm like, what is this movie with these cool shots? So there was a scene, and I think it was when they were in Italy mm-hmm. in the church, and Vilmos was so angry at Cliff Robertson getting a tan when they told him to stop. Right. He grabs Cliff Robertson by the lapels and threw him up against the wall and said, how am I supposed to light you? You look like the freaking wall. Because <laughs> that was what the 70s were all about. <laughs> right. <laughs> and everybody hated Cliff Robertson on the movie. Okay. And, you know, and then this is one of the things where, again, he casts like these favorites that will pop up in movies throughout the year. John Lithgow. I don't know that I've seen John Lithgow at this age before. That's what's fascinating, right? When you get to see John Lithgow in one of his earliest performances. Yeah, and it and I liked that performance. I did, but here's the thing with De Palma, and I don't know. This is my question to you: Does De Palma yeah. know that he is tipping his hand? Because I feel like Hitchcock was great because you didn't always know right. what the surprise was. But I feel like De Palma can't help himself that it was, just, to me, Lithgow always seemed like he was going to be the bad guy. Oh, right from the beginning. Yeah. So that's the problem. <laughs> and you know what? He's the bad guy in Blowout. Yeah. And he's also, well, in Raising Cane. So I think there's a Lithgow problem, but it's De Palma's I, problem. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 I'm, Paul Schrader wrote this movie. He did, but they. But he was really angry about it. He had oh, taken really? His, well, because okay. So here's here's the thing. Now that I'm telling yeah, you, yeah, I like to hear this stuff. You know, they cast Genevieve Bourgeois. 
Yeah. Who's French. Jean Vievre. Jean, oh, that, is that how you say it? I could never yeah. say her name right. Jean Jean Vievre Bourgeois. Um, I always kind of like her. Uh, yeah, she's in coma and well, man, when, it, when I started watching this movie and I, I, I hadn't seen her name in the credits or something. And I, when she first showed up in the movie, I went, Oh my God, who is that? That's like the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in a movie. Well, you want, you want to see, watch that movie Anne of a thousand days. Oh yeah. She's Anne Boleyn and she is amazing. Okay. She was nominated for an Oscar. She's really yeah, good. She's she's great. So here's the thing, Schrader. There's a there's three there's a third act to the movie that they didn't film. What? There's like it's almost like another level of the fake out that takes place like years later or something. And basically, Bernard Herrmann, when he was working in, in, in the early stages of the score, he says to De Palma, "This is insane. You can't. This is a. It's going to be way too long, and then nobody will see this movie, and it doesn't make any sense." And he actually convinced De Palma that they should cut that whole part out, and Schrader was pissed. Wow. Now, the thing is, they also had to change, and Schrader was pissed, is that they had to kind of create almost that dreamlike thing about the events because right. the studio was like, "You can't film." them having a relationship that's insane because in the in the trader version they did oh really well, yeah that was going to be the big hook was that they get married and stuff and then you find out all that stuff oh wow and to me it also the whole plot of the movie seemed pretty obvious and in the way that you remember that uh steve mcqueen movie with liam neeson steve mcqueen the director yeah, yeah, with Liam Neeson. Yeah, they were the robbers and stuff. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and I felt I, that the plot twist was so obvious. It was so obvious, yes. I, that's I, the same thing with Obsession. I was like, I could see this thing a mile away. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't have all the details worked out, and I still don't. <laughs> it's a crazy movie. That's why. <laughs> Here's the thing. The basic premise of this movie is so absurd. That, but that's another De Palma staple. He, he basically, he, he like pieces these films that when you're watching them, you're like, this is absurd. And he doesn't seem to care because he just wants to be able to have A go to B, go to C to D so that he can do all the things he wants to do. <laughs> and he doesn't really, I mean, if you pitched somebody to this movie, they would just be like, there are so many holes in that. Well, that's why The Dress to Kill is his masterpiece because right. it is so filled with nonsense and yet it is still way enjoyable even while I'm going, this is so ridiculous. And we haven't even gotten to that, but that's why I was like, I got to go back and see all his stuff. I enjoyed Obsession. Um, well, I think you enjoyed it more than I did, but it's like, I feel like it's a forgotten movie. It Well, that's part of the reason I enjoyed it is it was just, you know, a, an old movie that I had never seen before and didn't know much about. And it feels totally forgotten because when I got into De Palma in the 80s, I went and tried to watch everything I could find on VHS. Right. And I would have seen that if it was around. I've, ne you know, for years, unless I was like staring at the IMDb, I didn't yeah. even know this thing existed. And uh, like I said, this is why. I like this is why we do the show so that we can kind of stumble upon something and then like dive deep. Part of the reason. I, I, yeah. So, I mean, I, I enjoyed it just because it was like a new fun thing that I hadn't heard about before. And it's not a great movie, but I, I really I, I enjoyed his direction in it more than I did in the movie I watched right before that. Which one was that one? Body Double. That might be part two, because that one I really enjoyed a lot, even though I was really angry about it, too. Yes. And okay. we and I just rewatched that and I just had a good time uh watching that but I also felt that it was one of these things where it was super manipulative just so yes. that he could 
do the movie he wanted to do. It was totally ridiculous. I didn't buy any of it for one second. <laughs> no, you don't buy any of But it. I just, there's stuff to really enjoy. It's a guilty pleasure yeah. for me. That one's a real guilty pleasure. And I, I felt that way about Obsession. I felt like this movie is absurd. It makes no sense. You could, you could go through this movie basically scene by scene and be like, yeah, that makes no sense. No, she would never do that. No, that they they wouldn't they would have found her in the house no that's the thing is everything that happens every beat in the story is there just to get you to all the points that he wants you to get to it doesn't mean that they would ever make sense in real life they make no sense yeah so the suspension of disbelief here is huge if you think about this movie at all it falls apart but somehow i think it she's an interesting actress for him to work with when you compare her to say like Nancy Allen. Well, he never worked with Genevieve ever again. I know. And I don't know the reasons why, but uh, who knows why, but I, uh, but I felt like she brought, we were talking about some of his, his performances being kind of cartoony. I felt like hers was less. So I think Cliff Robertson's performance was totally cartoony. Yes. That's kind of what I, that when I said I enjoyed it, that's why, because I thought it was kind of funny. What is the what is your first memory like of a De Palma film? Like, what's the first film that you remember seeing of De Palma's? So I think the first movie I saw was The Untouchables. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. When you saw The Untouchables, did you see it in the theater or was it on video? No, I saw it in the theater. Okay. I was excited to see it and I knew who De Palma was, but I hadn't. I'm looking, you know, looking at the list. I hadn't seen any of these movies. And so The Untouchables was the first one, and I went to like the opening day matinee. Interesting. By myself. Okay. And it was because you saw the previews and you were excited to see this movie about The Untouchables. Yeah, and it looked cool, and I knew who Brian De Palma was, but I, you know, I think, had I seen anything else? No, I think it's The Untouchables. I think, and, and then I immediately was like, hey, I got to check this guy out, and I worked at the video store then. Even though you hail from like, you know, New Hampshire and yeah. Maine and stuff, you, you didn't see like Carrie, I feel like for a lot of people might be the first, but. Yeah. I, I mean, I was aware of Carrie. I was freaked out by horror movies as oh, a kid. Okay. Everyone I knew saw Carrie, but I didn't watch it until later. I was like freaked out by it. And the Fury, nobody saw that. So Scarface, uh, I don't know. I was 12. My p parents didn't take me to see it. Sometimes you're aware of the movies before you're aware of the director. The first one I was aware of was Body Double. The first one you were aware of that was a De Palma film was Body Double, right? Yeah, I remember seeing an ad for it in a magazine and being kind of fascinated by the, uh, you know, Venetian blinds with the, with the scantily clothed woman behind it. I think the first time I was aware of a De Palma movie but didn't know it was De Palma was Carrie. Yeah, I was definitely aware of Carrie. I but just, we didn't yeah. know. I mean, that was actually even like with Spielberg, right? Yeah. I, I saw Jaws, but I didn't know who directed it. And then right, right. it wasn't until Raiders of the Lost Ark that mm -hmm. suddenly Spielberg was a name that I knew. You know, there's always that film. So, you know, yeah. Carrie, obviously in 1976, I was too little, but you saw pieces and bits and you saw like the trailer and you just, all you knew is you had that image of Carrie with blood on her face, right? Yes. <laughs> and then and you're like, oh, I don't know what that is, but that's scary. That's why I didn't want to see it. And then The Fury was a film that- I, I probably years before I realized that De Palma made that. Yeah. And that was something that the trailer showed at the drive-in 
And I remember a couple of moments from that that just seemed freaky. Like it seemed like freaky teenagers with special powers, right? And right, that just, right. that piqued my interest, but I knew nothing of it. And then of course, like I said, it, I didn't have cable in the early eighties until like maybe right. 84 or something. So whenever the Fury might've been doing its cable run on HBO and stuff. You missed it. I missed it. And then they just, it's in one of those movies that didn't show. So the first movie that I saw was I'll never forget was Carrie. I couldn't wait because I was seeing horror movies, but I saw it on TV and it was probably cut. Well, all kinds of cut up, yeah. On channel thirty eight, and it was at my grandma's house, and I remember we all watched it and loved it. And the ending when Amy Irving brings the flowers to the grave, and then that hand. Oh yes, yes, pops yeah. up, which now I know is a classic De Palma dream fake out yes and i thought that was unique to carry at the time but nope the dream fake out he loves those dream fake outs he loves to do the pop-up behind you that's like a move where he has the oh yeah the, the villain, figure, pop the up villain behind pops you. up right behind you and then disappears and he right. even has this thing it's it's a thing for De Palma. he does this for shock value he has a moment in Mission to Mars, where he does that. Yes, you're right. Yes. Where Don Cheadle pops up behind. Yes. And it's a surprise. He loves this one shot. So, and nobody else does this but him. He does this <laughs> shot. So, I realized that, uh, you know, so Carrie, this, well, we jumped, my grandma jumped off her chair and we were like freaked out. It was so scary to us. Yeah. Uh, so, that's the first film I ever saw of his. Then- uh, 1983, we have Scarface, right? Yes. And I was aware that it, I guess De Palma was directed, but De Palma didn't, you know, that meant nothing to me other than, right. oh, I think that's the guy who directed Carrie. Like I right, didn't understand not... about his style or anything or uh, any of the stuff that he would be doing in a movie like that might have those De Palma staples. And I really wanted to see the movie. You know, it was kind of a gangster film. I hadn't seen uh, even The Godfather at that point. And so Al Pacino, he isn't somebody that I really knew. Right. You know, I knew who the name, but like, I didn't know all those performances. And so the fact that he's not a Cuban <laughs> playing a Cuban, like that <laughs> in Cuban face or whatever, that didn't, that, oh, man. that didn't seem to like resonate as something bad for me, even though that was a big, <laughs> people might not realize that critics were pouncing upon that yes. at the time. Yep. And it was actually, a lot of people might not realize this either. Most De Palma films were not box office hits. No. And a lot of them got critical drubbings. Yeah. And, and Scarface was critically drubbed at the time and also a bomb. But my dad wanted to see it. And on January, I, just, I always remember this, just happens to be uh, January 1st, uh, New Year's Day, 1984. My dad, we were sitting around and we were like, let's go see Scarface. And so he took me and I was probably 12 and a half at right, the time. Yeah. And the movie, you know, it was <laughs> an impact on me. But I remember, and I've talked about like with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, having that pit yeah. in my stomach. Well, one of the very few times, and it was only for this like a brief moment, this is where De Palma is super successful. You know the scene, the scene where they're chained up. The drug deal's gone bad. Yep. And there's all that tension where you're cutting back and forth. Yes. In my mind, when I watched that scene, not only was I just petrified inside, I actually thought 
that you saw nonstop blood and guts. Right. And didn't realize there's only a, a small amount of stuff yeah. going on, but it just seemed so graphic to me. And he is the master of suspense there. It's that intercutting, which is something that he is really a master of. Like during a really tense thing, cutting back to something else. I'm just thinking of sisters, like when he goes to buy the cake and she's in the bathroom. All of those things that he does over and over again. Again, some people like to say, oh, he's doing these Hitchcock things. But he does his own version of whatever he's about because there's all of these things that build up as I've seen multiple films now of his that uh, I think of a scene in body double. And for some reason it comes back up again in raising Cain, which is joggers joggers oh, interesting coming into the mix that they become part of the plot uh, for a second. And they, they have a plot and there's like, again, it's part of this tension and about whether somebody's going to get caught or whether somebody's going to be able to do something. Right. During the big murder scene in Body Double, he has to try to enlist these uh, the help of these two joggers. and Right, right, right. And he even frames these things almost similarly. <laughs> And That's intro. Okay, I, I I'll I need to see Raising Cain again, but yeah, I just I just watched Body Double. Again. I don't know. If, well, I think the way we're going, I don't think we're going to get to Raising Cain, but that is a film that I have so much to talk about with Raising Cain. Good, uh, because there's stories abound, and my journey with this movie, <laughs> um, which I still don't think is very good, but I have a big journey about it. Well, a lot of the a lot of his movies are not great. You were like, holy shit, best movie I've I ever seen in my life. I thought it was great, and I couldn't <laughs> yeah. believe that the Academy wasn't giving it attention. And so for years, I knew it was good. I also, another thing that impacted me a lot about the movie is, is because of the time. I mean, they said the F word like 300 times. Oh, yes. And as a thir- you know, almost 13-year-old, that was a big deal. Like, I was like, I've never yeah. heard that word used so often in a movie. Well, and it's also got, again, like an operatic kind of movie. It's very over the top in a lot of ways. Well, he has, I mean, that's again, another De Palma. He has the set pieces. And yes. there's also another thing that comes up through tons of his movies. And I'm just thinking about it here. He loves to do things with mirrors. Oh, he loves to do things with mirrors. And so yes. there's a big thing to do in that club sequence with mirrors in this film. And Carrie has mirrors and Phantom of the Paradise yeah. has mirrors and Sisters has <laughs> mirrors and Obsession has mirrors. <laughs> and, and Femme Fatale has tons, tons of mirrors. Of mirrors. <laughs> and of course, Dressed to Kill has some of the most amazing mirror yes. setups I've ever seen in a movie. Yes. So it's just, again, there's these things that he's very fascinated with, but what he does that a lot of filmmakers today, and I'm thinking of the younger ones, yeah, he thinks about the shots. Like he actually set, yes. has a sequence that he is setting up. Yes. And that is, it's not just like, oh, we got to shoot this scene. It's like, what is the scene going to be? Well, and he really is thinking about story and character when he moves the camera. What was I just watching where (laughs) I can't place the movie, but he's got a telephone in the foreground and the character is leaving and the camera moves to the telephone and then the character comes back. And I was like, that's uh, I mean, it's it's obvious and it's simple and it's kind of straightforward, but it's also like that's the character's internal uh, decision making influencing the camera. Well, okay, so there's a couple other things he does with the camera that's interesting is that there's, you know, schools of thought where the camera should aid the storytelling, but not get in the way of it. Yeah. But De Palma makes the camera work very 
obvious. You're always aware you're watching a movie. And I think that's part of his thing where he actually wants people to never think because you are watching a movie, right? So he's yes. kind of saying, well, then why do you have to get so hung up? Let's let's take it all a little bit further. Yeah, let's push it a little bit further. And it fits in with kind of his voyeuristic themes, right? Is that he's exploring ways of seeing and looking at things and how that changes our perception of, of the meaning of them. Will you also have him use the camera as a point of view of an actor. Oh, yes, which absolutely. Which you don't get in a lot of movies, but yeah. he actually purposely uses the camera as an actor point of view where there are schools of thought saying you should never do that. Absolutely, yeah, but uh, De Palma is his own school of thought. And then, of course, we haven't <laughs> even mentioned yet, but this shows up in, like it's one of his staples. And it's very noticeable at times, like you're supposed to try to hide it, but he loves a particular effect called the split diopter. Yes. And just describe it for our li listeners. He does two things. He likes to split action where he does a split screen, where yes. he's telling a story simultaneously. And that is to try to get the viewer disoriented. And also, yeah. you know, and also he plays with time because sometimes you think you're watching the same events at the same time. But they're not. Yeah. But another thing is he likes to focus on what's happening in the background, but then also mm -hmm. put somebody really up close in the foreground. Yes. Now with a regular lens or even in your, your own eyes, you can't. You can't keep them both in focus. Right. And in his early work, he has, there's a scene in Phantom of the Paradise where he tries to do this, where he wants to show you what's happening in the foreground yeah. and he wants to show you what's happening in the background. He didn't have a technology or the cinematographer as disposal. So you have him racking focus back and forth. Oh, weird. But it's an okay. early, it's, it's, a, it's his early desire to show. To show those two things. At the same time. Fascinating. Yeah. So then he starts to go into, and I don't know, I mean, I think he does this in Carrie, actually. Well, he's got it in Obsession. And he got it in Obsession. So I'm thinking that Vilmos yes, is that's the one exactly. who introduced this ability. Yes. Because then he uses it a lot in Dress to Kill, and he uses it in The Fury, and he uses it to great effect in Blowout, and he uses uh -huh. it in Scarface. And he just uses it throughout all his movies, and now it's a thing where it's a trademark, and every single movie, even if he's not using it a lot, will have that. Right, yes. Everything. These are things that, again, the only other person that I remember using the split diopter very much was Oliver Stone. Yes. And so when I was in film school, we had a cinematography class. And, of course, De Palma and his techniques were on the forefront of a lot of filmmakers' mind. Sure, because they're cool. We had to do a lighting scenario. We had to shoot like a – we had to come up with like a little story and a scene that we could shoot with our little group. And I only – I wish I could see this thing again because it was pretty cool. We did this little scene and it took place in like a jail cell and we had to light it and stuff. But, of course, we were really obnoxious and we wanted to try all these film techniques. Right. And, it, <laughs> and we didn't even really think we were like ripping off uh, Vilmo Sigma. But one of the things that he did was uh, flash flashing film. Yes. Give it a softer – uh, yep. look so we said we're gonna we're gonna flash this movie <laughs> so we, we wanted to try it do the pinhole and flash the yeah, film yeah. and run it back so we did that and we also wanted to do a split diopter effect of course so we they had a split diopter we could try and we got to see the result the, it looked amazing i bet we actually were very successful the split diopter where you couldn't see the split line 
Yeah, if you line it up right. And now he he doesn't care. Sometimes it's a little foggy on the, you know, out of focus on the corners. Right. And sometimes he hides it really well, but it's still an effect that is so jarring that the casual viewer still knows something weird is up with the way this is being filmed. Yeah, well, it's very obvious that you're being shown something in a really, from a very specific point of view in a very purposeful way that there's visual information going on in the frame that is important that you're paying attention to. And so it's not just about, say, the characters or the performances. The cinematic voice is as much a character as everything else. And, well, you know, and another thing you had said earlier about some of his films are a little bit, I don't know, not hammy, but a little bit ramped up a little bit. Is, yeah, they're, they're, they're a little bit larger than life. So the, we were talking about Bernard Herrmann, who yeah. did these scores for Hitchcock. And that that music evokes a certain period of filmmaking that didn't happen mm-hmm. in the 70s. You weren't getting that kind of score. So when you hear that score in both Sisters and... And in Obsession, you can't almost help but make a comparison to Hitchcock. Well, Obsession feels like a movie that was made earlier. And so what you may not realize is that Bernard Herrmann was on tap to do Carrie, but then he died after finishing his work on Taxi Driver. Oh, on Taxi Driver. Oh, that was right then. he just finished the last bit and then he went home and had a heart attack and died. Wow. Okay. So he couldn't do Carrie. So then he found a new collaborator. And I think this is an important step because there are films that feel very De Palmery when this mm-hmm. guy does a score is Pino Donaggio. Okay. And he did seven movies with Brian De Palma. List them out. And those are Carrie. That's the first mm-hmm. one. Then he did Dress to Kill, Blowout, Body Double, Raising Cane. Okay. He did Passion. Okay. And he did Domino. Wow, so he's still still around. Huh, okay. Fascinating. And so, you know, there's a film that you didn't see. You said you saw some of it and you thought it was terrible and you gave up, and that was passion. Yeah, but you've convinced me that I need to go back to it. I can understand why you think it's terrible because it has a lot of the things that you that are terrible about De Palma. Yes. And that the the acting it's like he gets actors. But they're not great choices. Rachel McAdams was totally wrong for the movie. Totally wrong. I couldn't deal with the acting and I didn't like the cinematography. And well, he doesn't have, I think that Stephen H. Byrne, which we haven't really gotten into him yet. Yeah. He starts a relationship with De Palma with Body Double. And once, and then he did like a whole bunch of movies with him. And that is another trademark because Stephen Byrne does these super wide angle shots. And yes. another thing is the Dutch angles that yep. uh, De Palma likes to use. So Rachel McAdams and Numi Rapace. Yeah. They're just, they're just not that they're bad. They're just not the right. The whole production is to blame for that. Yeah. And the film feels like it was, you know, a European production. He makes the best of it. It's based on a French film. And so it's a remake. That's right. And it was probably better. However, once you really get into this movie, it becomes Da Palma all the way, including all of the switch ups, the 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 fake outs, the dream pop ups, the mirrors. You got slashed throats. You got the <laughs> you got the split screen. He does an insane split screen. This is a movie. Okay. I And you're going to be shocked. You're going to be like, whoa, this is the De Palma I remember. <laughs> well, and, you know, had this uh, this response to several of these movies, it's very similar where it's just like, I'm totally enjoying this. 
Like, I know this is kind of cheesy. His scenes with cops drive me crazy. This is another thing he does. Dennis Franz. <laughs> yes. His friend, Dennis. We haven't even, you know what? Next the next episode, we really have to dive in deep to Dress to Kill. Yes. Because I feel like there's, there's the ride up to Dress to Kill, and then there's everything after Dress to Kill. But that yes. Dress to Kill movie there's so much to talk about for people there's who don't realize. There's so much realize. to talk about. And just my relationship with that film and how I hadn't seen it in like good 30 years and then just rewatched it and how my opinion is so much different of it now than it oh, was. Oh, interesting. When I was seeing De Palma movies back in the day, I wasn't really looking at it as a total Hitchcock ripoff. Right, right, right. And it is. It's a total Hitchcock ripoff. It's a it is, but it's also a, it's also totally De Palma, man. It's totally De Palma. No, he's he's riffing on Hitchcock, I think. But he's <laughs> well, and he has similar obsessions. I don't think he's just. I don't think it's all homage. I think he, you know, they're soulmates in a way. The good double feature is watching Dress to Kill and Body Double because he's a guy who even riffs on himself. Oh, he absolutely. That's does. the best part. Yes. He the whole idea of Body Double was generated because there was a lot of talk and controversy about the shower scene in Dress to Kill and how they hired a body double to play all the nude scenes for- For Angie Dickinson. For Angie Dickinson. And she was very relieved about that. But yeah. they that whole very graphic opening scene, yeah, that's a body double. And so that was where the idea, and they even riff on it with that shower scene at the end <laughs> in body double. That's a whole, that's a whole take on, because remember they bring in the body double to yes, do all yes. the graphic gory stuff? Of, of sexual nature that's a whole thing he's take he's doing a whole riff on his own work which is insane that's that's just so fun that's why body double is like the it's the terrible movie at the end i mean one of the worst endings right it's terrible but yet it is amazing there's so yes. many great things the whole frankie goes to hollywood porn shoot scene oh yeah fantastic melody griffith performance is great yeah it's just I had his circle camera work thing. I, the first I, obsession has one of those, the circle shot. Oh, then it's, it's, it's totally, they're totally ridiculous. He, does, he loves it. And they are ridiculous. But here's the other thing. I feel like Brian De Palma is really joyful about his creativity. He really enjoys this stuff. It's fun and pleasurable for him. And, and you can kind of feel him there laughing, you know. But like, see, that's the funny part is studios are like, that's great, Brian, but we need to make money. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Like he, he was, they were letting him do whatever he wanted, and then it's like at some point he's like, wait, 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 what are we getting? And Body Double was like, it was a bomb. Oh, it was a total bomb. It was a bomb. But see, now you gotta, you, you since you really like Obsession, yeah, you need to go to Raising Cain because he riffs on Obsession. Okay, and I didn't pick. I would never have picked that up before. Right. I never saw Obsession, and you've got. I, I can't talk to you about this Raising Cain until you rewatch it. Yep. Because we're going to talk about the daughter in the movie. All I will say is he harkens back to Don't Look Now in the movie. Oh, okay. So yeah. you watch that movie. There's just this, that movie out of all his films could be the one that has the most to talk about because it is so insane and it's so De Palma and somebody gave him money to do <laughs> just what he wanted to do. <laughs> Yeah. Now, the uh, at some point we'll talk about De Palma the writer versus De Palma the director. Ooh, yeah, he's not a very good writer, in my opinion. I think that's part of the problem in some of his movies. He has a tendency to do these long scenes that explain everything. Oh no, that's another De Palma staple. It's yes. the wrap up. <laughs> It's the wrap up, but sometimes Every usually there, usually there's a wrap up an hour in 
right? He does all these amazing opening sequences and stuff in about 45 minutes to an hour in is the first wrap up. Like, here's what's going on. And then it goes into the next switcheroo. Oh, I mean, Dress to Kill has the wrap up. Let's see what else has the wrap up. Sisters has a wrap up. I feel like the last half hour of Sisters is a wrap up. Obsession's a wrap up. Yep. What else is there? Well, uh, Phantom of the Paradise has a wrap up. Yep. Body Double has a wrap up. Uh, Raising Cain <laughs> has a wrap up. <laughs> but but even but even like in, again in Body Double, I feel like an hour into the movie, here's a cop scene where we're gonna like explain a bunch of stuff. They're like they're like Keystone cops, right? They're cops that are really goofy, and nobody really believes the protagonist. Um, but, and that's what happens in like dress to kill, right? Uh, yes. He doesn't believe her. Yeah. And Dennis Franz, I thought was terrible in that, but like, oh yeah, he's another staple. He's in a lot of his movies in body <laughs> double. He plays, he actually, he plays De Palma. Oh yes. Yes. That's right. He plays De Palma. He said, yeah. I'm going to play you as you. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said like, basically that's how like De Palma acts. I guess he was just like always insane on set. Well, okay. I mean, okay. So I think, are we, are we wrapping up now? I guess so. Audience, are you still with us? <laughs> well, because I feel like anything we get into now is going to open a whole nother can of worms. Well, we're going to get, we're in the next episode, we got to talk about Raising Cane. We got to go about Dress to Kill. And then we got to maybe talk about how some of the, the movies I think he's the most successful at is the ones where he had to behave himself and he had to go with like screenplays. Like for instance, like The Untouchables. It's definitely a De Palma movie. It has all yeah. the staples, but it also doesn't have some of the things that are bad about De Palma. It's one of his best movies, but it seems unfair because it seems like it's so out of uh, vocabulary for the rest of his work. <laughs> and like Mission Impossible, yeah. total De Palma movie, but it also feels very out of touch. Yeah, and somehow those are his better movies where he hasn't been allowed to do absolutely everything he wants. When he sort of like a like they they like got a guy for hire, but they also wanted somebody that could add some stylish touches to the movie. Exactly, and sometimes he was allowed to go. I think a little too far. Um, but The Untouchables, I believe Art Linson produced that. Yes. And I read his uh, autobiography years ago. Okay. And he talks about, you know, choosing De Palma. And basically, he just had such a good script for Mammoth <laughs> that he was like, we need to bring some other, we need, like, we need a visual because, you know, Mammoth's writing can be kind of over the top. Right. And so Linson was like, we need somebody with like visual language to match that. Well, they got it. And they got it. And we'll, we'll hopefully in the next hour, we will touch, yeah. we'll touch on that. Um, and I didn't look at, let's not forget. I did watch for the first time ever. I watched the fury and boy, do I have a lot to say about that. Okay. So it is a cheese bag movie that is so <laughs> ridiculous in many ways. And there's so many bad things about it. And yet it was actually one of his first minor hits. Right. It did. Okay. Didn't it? It yeah. feels so dated and hilarious in ways that just, again, it's De Palma doing these funny things, but it's so silly at times. Well, one movie we haven't talked about, and I haven't seen it since the 80s, is um, Wise Guys. Okay. So out of all of this, out of nowhere, and maybe because he needed the work, he made this weird little comedy that I saw when I worked at the movie theater in 1986, <laughs> Wise Guys. And it has nothing to do with the Palma, though. If I watched it now, I'd probably see all these trademarks. Oh, I bet you would. I bet you'd pick up on tons of that stuff. But yeah, it's a weird little comedy with Joe Piscopo and Danny DeVito. Good luck finding that one. But uh, I did see it. I saw it in the theater and yep. it was a De Palma movie and it came out. And then, of course, Untouchables kind of put him back on the map. Right. And then, of course, he kind of maybe uh, he used all that 
goodwill and he used it up with Casualties of War and the Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah, I've got some things to say about Casualties of War. And so we'll talk about that because I did, have a good are story. You, did you rewatch Casualties I of War? I didn't, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you my story. Um, yeah. But it's one of my least favorite De Palma movies. Yeah. And it's just a weird experience that I had in the theater seeing that. So that'll be a story okay. for next week. And, uh, you know, again, we'll see how much we can uh, touch, but there's still a lot more to talk about with this guy. I think we talked about all the trademarks. And so now we can, you know, splinter those in when we... Yeah, now we can go into a little bit uh, more depth on some of these particular movies. And believe me, if I can get my hands on certain films, I will try to watch them before the next episode. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm... I would recommend you see Raising Cain. And what I would recommend to you is watch it. And then if you really want to, try watching the first... 40 minutes of the director's cut. Okay. Because- I'm very curious about it, yeah. I'm glad I saw both. It was good. And I, I kind of fast forwarded towards the second half of it because the second half of it- it's not as much different? It, well, no, it, it kind of follows the way it should, but uh, right, we okay. won't get into that story. We'll save it. It's a really interesting story. And then it kind of fits in really well with my viewing experience of Raising Cain in the theaters. And then, you know, Domino, I mean, I'm a completionist, so I saw Domino, but I would recommend Passion. Okay. Yeah. Passion sounds cool. I want to check passion out Passion. Passion is cool. Just- I might skip The Fury. Oh my God. That was- Okay. My, I'm my not wife skipping I, The Fury. My wife and I, it was so funny. It's it's just hilarious, and and it's got it's got one of those amazing De Palma tension building sequences that is altogether silly, but it's so put together in an awesome yeah. way that you're just like you, you almost sort of slow clap into an applause. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm gonna okay. Yeah, I'm, we'll we'll see what I can get to. I got it. I know it's you know there's like there's only so much time, and then we'll we'll, re, we'll regroup. So uh, yeah. stay with us, listener. Um, um, and watch out for uh, a surprise, scary <laughs> ending that comes at you nowhere. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.